Chapter 7 of Animals of the Past by Frederick Lucas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeffrey Smith. Reading the Riddles of the Rocks. And the first morning of creation wrote what the last dawn of reckoning shall read. It is quite possible that the reader may wish to know something of the manner in which the specimens described in these pages have been gathered, how we acquire our knowledge of Brontosaurus, Cleosaurus, or any of the many other sauruses, and how their restorations have been made. There was a time not so very long ago when fossils were looked upon as mere sports of nature, and little attention paid to them. Later their true nature was recognized, though they were merely gathered haphazard as occasion might offer. But now, and for many years past, the fossil-bearing rocks of many parts of the world have been systematically worked, and from the material thus obtained we have acquired a great deal of information regarding the inhabitants of the ancient world. This is particularly true of our own western country, where a vast amount of collecting has been done, although very much remains to be done in the matter of perfecting this knowledge, and hosts of new animals remain to be discovered. For this information we are almost as much indebted to the collector who has gathered the needed material and the preparator whose patience and skill have made it available for study as to the paleontologist who has interpreted the meaning of the bones to collect successfully demands not only a knowledge of the rocks in which fossils occur and of the localities where they are best exposed to view but an eye quick to detect a piece of bone protruding from a rock or lying amongst the shale, and, above all, the ability to work a deposit to advantage after it has been found. The collector of living animals hies to regions where there is plenty for bird and beast to eat and drink, but the collector of extinct animals cares little for what is on the surface of the earth. His great desire is to see as much as possible of what may lie beneath. So the prospector in search of fossils betakes himself to some region where the ceaseless warfare waged by water against the dry land has seamed the face of the earth with countless gullies and canyons, or carved it into slopes and bluffs in which the edges of the bone-bearing strata are exposed to view and along these he skirts ever on the lookout for some projecting bit of bone. The country is an almost shadeless desert, burning hot by day, uncomfortably cool at night. Water is scarce, and when it can be found, often has little to commend it, save wetness. But the collector is buoyed up through all this with the hope that he may discover some creature new to science that shall not only be bigger and uglier and stranger than any heretofore found, 
but shall be the long-sought form needed for the solution of some difficult problem in the history of the past now collecting is a lottery differing from most lotteries however in that while some of the returns may be pretty small there are few absolute blanks and some remarkably large prizes and every collector hopes that it may fall to his lot to win one of these and is willing to work long and arduously for the chance of obtaining it it may give some idea of the chances to say that some years ago dr wortman spent almost an entire season in the field without success and then at the eleventh hour found the now famous skeleton of phenacodus or that a party from princeton actually camped within one hundred yards of a rich deposit of rare fossils and yet failed to discover it let us however suppose that the reconnaissance has been successful and that an outcrop of bone has been found serving like a tombstone carven with strange characters to indicate the burial place of some primeval monster possibly nature long ago rifled the grave washing away much of the skeleton and leaving little save the fragments visible on the surface on the other hand these pieces may form part of a complete skeleton and there is no way to decide this important question save by actual excavation the manner of disinterment varies but much depends on whether the fossil lies in comparatively loose shale or is embedded in the solid rock whether the strata are level or dip downward into the hillside if unfortunately this last is the case it necessitates a careful shoring up of the excavation with props of cottonwood or such boards as may have been brought along to box specimens or it may even be necessary to run a short tunnel in order to get at some coveted bone should the specimen lie in shale as is the case with most of the large reptiles that have been collected much of that work may be done with pick and shovel but if it is desirable or necessary to work in firm rock drills and hammers wedges even powder may be needed to rend from nature her long-kept secrets in any event a detailed plan is made of the excavation and each piece of bone or section of rock duly recorded therein by letter and number so that later on the relation of the parts to one another may be known or the various sections assembled in the workroom exactly as they lay in the quarry bones which lie in loose rock are often one might say usually more or less broken and when a bone three four or even six feet long weighing anywhere from one hundred to one thousand pounds has been shattered to fragments the problem of removing it is no easy one but here the skill of the collector comes into play to treat the fossil as a surgeon treats a fractured limb 
to cover it with plaster bandages and brace it with splints of wood or iron so that the specimen may not only be taken from the ground but endure in safety the coming journey of a thousand or more miles for simpler cases or lighter objects strips of sacking or even paper applied with flour and water suffice or pieces of sacking soaked in thin plaster may be laid over the bone first covering it with thin paper in order that the plaster jacket may simply stiffen and not adhere to it collecting has not always been carried on in this systematic manner for the development of the present methods has been the result of years of experience formerly there was a mere skimming over of the surface in what professor marsh used to term the potato gathering style but now the effort is made to remove specimens intact often embedded in large masses of rock in order that all parts may be preserved we will take it for granted that our specimens have safely passed through all perils by land and water road and rail that they have been quarried boxed carted over a roadless country to the nearest railway and have withstood two thousand miles of jolting in a freight car the first step in reconstruction has been taken the problem now that the boxes are reposing on the workroom floor is to make the blocks of stone give up the secrets they have guarded for ages to free the bones from their enveloping matrix in order that they may tell us something of the life of the past the method of doing this varies with the conditions under which the material has been gathered and if from hard clay chalk or shale the process though tedious enough at best is by no means so difficult as if the specimens are embedded in solid rock in this case the fragments from a given section of quarry must be assembled according to the plan which has been carefully made as the work of exhumation progressed all pieces containing bone must be stuck together and weak parts strengthened with gum or glue now the mass is attacked with hammer and chisel and the surrounding matrix slowly and carefully cut away until the contained bone is revealed a process much simpler and more expeditious in the telling than in the actuality for the preparator may not use the heavy tools of the ordinary stone cutter sometimes an awl or even a glover's needle must suffice him and the chips cut off are so small and such care must be taken not to injure the bone that the work is really tedious this may perhaps be better appreciated by saying that to clean a single vertebra of such a huge dinosaur as diplodocus may require a month of continuous labor and that a score of these big and complicated bones besides others of simpler structure are included in the backbone the finished specimen weighs over one hundred twenty pounds 
while as originally collected with all the adherent rock the weight was twice or thrice as great such a mass as this is comparatively small and sometimes huge blocks are taken containing entire skulls or a number of bones and not infrequently weighing a ton the largest single specimen is a skull of triceratops collected by mr j b hatcher which weighed when boxed three thousand six hundred fifty pounds or as the result of some mishap or through the work of an inexperienced collector a valuable specimen may arrive in the shape of a box full of irregular fragments of stone compared with which a dissected map or an old-fashioned chinese puzzle is simplicity itself and one may spend hours looking for some piece whose proper location gives the clue to an entire section and days even may be consumed before the task is completed while this not only tries the patience but the eyes as well there is nevertheless a fascination about this work of fashioning a bone out of scores possibly hundreds of fragments and watching the irregular bits of stone shaping themselves into a mosaic that forms a portion of some creature possibly quite new to science and destined to bear a name as long as itself and thus after many days of toil the bone that millions of years before sank into the mud of some old lake bottom or was buried in the sandy shoals of an ancient river is brought to light once more to help tell the tale of the creatures of the past one bone might convey a great deal of information on the other hand it might reveal very little for while it is very painful to say so the popular impression that it is possible to reconstruct an animal from a single bone or tell its size and habits from a tooth is but partially correct and sometimes the eminent scientist has come to grief even with a great many bones at his disposal did not one of the ablest anatomists describe and figure the hip bones of a dinosaur as its shoulder blade and another equally able reconstruct a reptile hind side before placing the head on the tail this certainly sounds absurd enough but just as absurd mistakes are made by men in other walks of life often with far more deplorable results before passing to the restoration of the exterior of animals it may be well to say something of the manner in which the skeleton of an extinct animal may be reconstructed and the meaning of its various parts interpreted for the adjustment of the muscles is dependent on the structure of the skeleton and putting on the muscles means blocking out the form details of external appearance being supplied by the skin and its accessories of hair scales or horns 
let us suppose in the present instance that we are dealing with one of the great reptiles known as triceratops whose remains are among the treasures of the national museum at washington for the reconstruction of the big beast well illustrates the methods of the paleontologist and also the troubles by which he is beset moreover this is not a purely imaginary case but one that is very real for the skeleton of this animal which was shown at buffalo was restored in paper mache in exactly the manner indicated we have a goodly number of bones but by no means an entire skeleton and yet we wish to complete the skeleton and incidentally to form some idea of the creature's habits now we can interpret the past only by a knowledge of the present and it is by carefully studying the skeletons of the animals of today that we can learn to read the meaning of the symbols of bones left by the animals of a million yesterdays thus we find that certain characters distinguish the bone of a mammal from that of a bird a reptile or a fish and these in turn from one another and this constitutes the a b c of comparative anatomy and in a like manner the bones of the various divisions of these main groups have to a greater or less extent their own distinguishing characteristics so that by first comparing the bones of extinct animals with those of creatures that are now living we are enabled to recognize their nearest existing relative and then by comparing them with one another we learn the relations they bore in the ancient world but it must be borne in mind that some of the early beasts were so very different from those of today that until pretty much their entire structure was known there was nothing with which to compare odd bones had but a single incomplete specimen of triceratops come to light we should be very much in the dark concerning him and although remains of some thirty individuals have been discovered these have been so imperfect that we are very far from having all the information we need a great part of the head with its formidable looking horns is present and although the nose is gone we know from other specimens that it too was armed with a knob or horn and that the skull ended in a beak something like that of a snapping turtle though formed by a separate and extra bone similarly the end of the lower jaw is lacking but we may be pretty certain that it ended in a beak to match that of the skull the large leg bones of our specimen are mostly represented for these being among the more solid parts of the skeleton are more frequently preserved than any others and though some are from one side and some from another this matters not if the hind legs were disproportionately long it would indicate that our animal often or habitually walked erect 
but as there is only difference enough between the fore and hind limbs to enable triceratops to browse comfortably from the ground we would naturally place him on all fours even were the skull not so large as to make the creature too top-heavy for any other mode of locomotion were the limbs very small in comparison with the other bones it would obviously mean that their owner passed his life in the water for a skeleton has a twofold meaning it is the best the most enduring testimony we have as to an animal's place in nature and the relationships it sustains to the creatures that lived with it before it and after it more than this a skeleton is the solution of a problem in mechanics the problem of carrying a given weight and of adaptation to a given mode of life thus the skeleton varies according as a creature dwells on land in the water or in the air and according as it feeds on grass or preys upon its fellows and so the mechanics of a skeleton afford us a clue to the habits of the living animal something too may be gathered from the structure of the leg bones for solid bones mean either a sluggish animal or a creature of more or less aquatic habits while hollow bones emphatically declare a land animal and an active one at that and this in the case of the dinosaurs hints at predatory habits the ability to catch and eat their defenseless and more sluggish brethren a claw or better yet a tooth may confirm or refute this hint for a blunt claw could not be used in tearing prey limb from limb nor would a double-edged tooth made for rending flesh serve for champing grass but few bones of the feet and especially the forefoot are present these smaller parts of the skeleton having been washed away before the ponderous frame was buried in the sand and the best that can be done is to follow the law of probabilities and put three toes on the hind foot and five on the fore two of these last without claws the single blunt round claw among our bones shows as do the teeth that triceratops was herbivorous it also pointed a little downward and this tells that in the living animal the sole of the foot was a thick soft pad somewhat as it is in the elephant and rhinoceros and that the toes were not entirely free from one another there are less than a dozen vertebrae and still fewer ribs besides half a barrel full of pieces from which to reconstruct a backbone twenty feet long that the ribs are part from one side and part from another matters no more than it did in the case of the leg bones but the backbone presents a more difficult problem since the pieces are not like so many checkers all made after one pattern but each has an individuality of its own the total number of vertebrae must be guessed at perhaps it would sound better to say estimated but it really means the same and knowing that some sections are from the front part of the vertebral column and some from the back 
we must fill in the gaps as best we may the ribs offer a little aid in this task giving certain details of the vertebrae while those in turn tell something about the adjoining parts of the ribs we finish our triceratops with a tail of moderate length as indicated by the rapid taper of the few vertebrae available and from these we gather too that in life the tail was round and not flattened and that it neither served for swimming nor for a balancing pole and so little by little have been pieced together the fragments from which we have derived our knowledge of the past and thus has the paleontologist read the riddles of the rocks to make these dry bones live again to clothe them with flesh and reconstruct the creature as he was or may have been in life is to be honest very largely guesswork though to make a guess that shall come anywhere near the mark not only demands a thorough knowledge of anatomy for the basis of all restoration must be the skeleton but calls for more than a passing acquaintance with the external appearance of living animals and while there is nothing in the bones to tell how an animal is or was clad they will at least show to what group the creature belonged and that known there are certain probabilities in the case a bird for example would certainly be clad in feathers going a little farther we might be pretty sure that the feathers of a waterfowl would be thick and close those of strictly terrestrial birds such as the ostrich and other flightless forms lax and long these are general propositions of course in special cases one might easily come to grief as in dealing with birds like penguins which are particularly adapted for an aquatic life and have the feathers highly modified these birds depend upon their fat and not their feathers for warmth and so their feathers have become a sort of cross between scales and hairs hair and fur belong to mammals only although these creatures show much variety in their outer covering the thoroughly marine whales have discarded furs and adopted a smooth and slippery skin well adapted to movement through the water relying for warmth on a thick undershirt of blubber footnote the reader is warned that this is a mere figure of speech for of course the process of adaptation to surroundings is passive not active although there is a most unfortunate tendency among writers on evolution and particularly on mimicry to speak of it as active the writer believes that no animal in the first stages of mimicry consciously mimics or endeavors to resemble another animal or any part of its surroundings but a habit at first accidental may in time become more or less conscious end of footnote the earless seals that pass much of their time on the ice have just enough hair to keep them from absolute contact with it warmth again being provided for by blubber 
the fur seals which for several months in the year dwell largely on land have a coat of fur and hair although warmth is mostly furnished or rather kept in by fat no reptile therefore would be covered with feathers neither judging from those we know today would they be clad in fur or hair but such coverings being barred out there remain a great variety of plates and scales to choose from folds and frills crests and dewlaps like beauty are but skin deep and being thus superficial ordinarily leave no trace of their former presence and in respect to them the reconstructor must trust to his imagination with the law of probabilities as a check rein to his fancy this law would tell us that such ornaments must not be so placed as to be in the way and that while there would be a possibility one might even say probability of the great short-headed iguana-like dinosaurs having dewlaps that there would be no great likelihood of their possessing ruffs such as that of the australian chlamydosaurus mantled lizard to flap about their ears even stegosaurus with his bizarre array of great plates and spines kept them on his back out of the way such festal ornamentation would however more likely be found in small active creatures the larger beasts contenting themselves with plates and folds spines and plates usually leave some trace of their existence for they consist of a superstructure of skin or horn built on a foundation of bone and while even horn decomposes too quickly to petrify the bone will become fossilized and changed into enduring stone but while this affords a pretty sure guide to the general shape of the investing horn it does not give all the details and there may have been ridges and furrows and sculpturing that we know not of knowing then what the probabilities are we have some guide to the character of the covering that should be placed on an animal and if we may not be sure as to what should be done we may be pretty certain what should not for example to depict a dinosaur with smooth rubbery hide walking about on dry land would be to violate the probabilities for only such exclusively aquatic creatures as the whales among mammals and the salamanders among batrachians are clothed in smooth shiny skin there might however be reason to suspect that a creature largely aquatic in its habits did occasionally venture on land as for instance when vertebrae that seem illy adapted for carrying the weight of a land animal are found in company with huge limb bones and massive feet we may feel reasonably certain that their owner passed at least a portion of his time on terra firma so much for the probabilities as to the covering of animals known to us only by their fossil remains but it is often possible to go beyond this and to state certainly how they were clad 
for while the chances are small that any trace of the covering of an extinct animal other than bony plates will be preserved nature does now and then seem to have relented and occasionally some animal settled to rest where it was so quickly and quietly covered with fine mud that the impression of small scales feathers or even smooth skin was preserved curiously enough there seems to be scarcely any record of the imprint of hair then too it is to be remembered that while the chances were very much against such preservation in the thousands or millions of times creatures died the millionth chance might come uppermost silhouettes of those marine reptiles the ichthyosaurs have been found probably made by the slow carbonization of animal matter showing not only the form of the body and tail but revealing the existence of an unsuspected back fin and yet these animals were apparently clad in a skin as thin and smooth as that of a whale impressions of feathers were known long before the discovery of archaeopteryx a few have been found in the green river and florissant shales of wyoming and hesperornis in the collection of the state university of kansas shows traces of the existence of long soft feathers on the legs and very clear imprints of the scales and reticulated skin that covered the tarsus from the chalk of kansas too came the example of tylosaur showing that the back of this animal was decorated with the crest shown in mr knight's restoration one not unlike that of the modern iguana from the laramie sandstone of montana mr hatcher and mr butler have obtained the impressions of portions of the skin of the great dinosaur thespesius which show that the covering of this animal consisted largely if not entirely of small irregularly hexagonal horny scutes slightly thickened in the center the quarries of lithographic stone at solenhofen have yielded a few specimens of flying reptiles pterodactyls which not only verify the correctness of the inference that these creatures possessed membranous wings like the bats but showed the exact shape and it was sometimes very curious of this membrane and each and all of these wonderfully preserved specimens serve both to check and guide the restorer in his task of clothing the animal as it was in life and all this help is needed for it is an easy matter to make a wide sweeping deduction apparently resting on a good basis of fact and yet erroneous remains of the mammoth and woolly rhinoceros found in siberia and northern europe were thought to indicate that at the period when these animals lived the climate was mild a very natural inference since the elephants and rhinoceroses we now know are all inhabitants of tropical climes but the discovery of more or less complete specimens makes it evident that the climate was not particularly mild the animals were simply adapted to it 
instead of being naked like their modern relatives they were dressed for the climate in a woolly covering we think of the tiger as prowling through the jungles of india but he ranges so far north that in some localities this beast preys upon reindeer which are among the most northern of large mammals and there the tiger is clad in fairly thick fur when we come to coloring a reconstructed animal we have absolutely no guide unless we assume that the larger a creature the more soberly will it be colored the great land animals of today the elephant and rhinoceros to say nothing of the aquatic hippopotamus are very dully colored and while this somber coloration is today a protection rendering these animals less easily seen by man than they otherwise would be yet at the time this color was developing man was not nor were their enemies sufficiently formidable to menace the race of elephantine creatures for where mere size furnishes sufficient protection one would hardly expect to find protective coloration as well unless indeed a creature preyed upon others when it might be advantageous to enable a predatory animal to steal upon its prey color often exists or is supposed to as a sexual characteristic to render the male of a species attractive to or readily recognizable by the female but in the case of large animals mere size is quite enough to render them conspicuous and possibly this may be one of the factors in the dull coloration of large animals so while a green and yellow triceratops would undoubtedly have been a conspicuous feature in the cretaceous landscape from what we know of existing animals it seems best to curb our fancy and so far as large dinosaurs are concerned employ the colors of a rembrandt rather than those of a sign painter aids or at least hints to the coloration of extinct animals are to be found in the coloration of the young of various living species for as the changes undergone by the embryo are in a measure an epitome of the changes undergone by a species during its evolution so the brief color phases or markings of the young are considered to represent the ordinary coloring of distant ancestors young thrushes are spotted young ostriches and grebes are irregularly striped young lions are spotted and in restoring the early horse or hierocothere professor osborne had the animal represented as faintly striped for the reason that zebras the wild horses of today are striped and because the ass which is a primitive type of horse is striped over the shoulders these being hints that the earlier horse-like forms were also striped thus just as the skeleton of a dinosaur may be a composite structure made up of the bones of a dozen individuals and these in turn mosaics of many fragments so may the semblance of the living animal be based on a fact 
pieced out with a probability and completed by a bit of theory references there is a large series of restorations of extinct animals prepared by mr charles r knight under the direction of professor osborne in the hall of paleontology of the american museum of natural history and these are later to be reproduced and issued in portfolio form should the reader visit princeton he may see in the museum there a number of b waterhouse hawkins's creations creations is the proper word which are of interest as examples of the early work in this line the report of the smithsonian institution for nineteen hundred contains an article on the restoration of extinct animals pages four seventy nine to four ninety two which includes a number of plates showing the progress that has been made in this direction end of chapter seven